So, uh, so tonight, I thought we would talk about um, irresistible grace, the doctrine of irresistible grace, also known as, it goes by two names, um, you'll sometimes hear people talk about effectual calling, um, those are the same thing, exact same thing, just different wording for how we, for how we talk about it. And um, the reason it's important is because when we talk about irresistible grace, you know, there are some people, uh, a lot of people who think that God's grace is resistible, right? God's grace can be resisted. Um, and so that's an age-old debate that's been going on for at least 2,000 years. Can God's grace be resisted? And what that means is that when God desires to save a person and he's, he's trying to save them, uh, can people resist that and say, no, I don't want God. I'll go live on my own. And God says, oh, shucks, darn. I guess I missed out on another one. Um, and uh, so, or when we talk about effectual calling, that word effectual is just, it's a, it's a way of saying effective, right? When God calls, is it an effective call? Is it, is it effectual or is it not effectual? And um, R.C. Sproul, uh, in his great little book, The Essentials of, Essential Doctrine, I think it's called Essential Doctrines of the Christian Faith. Uh, it's one that I would recommend. It's, a, it's only about, you know, maybe 200 pages. Um, and it's in, the subtitle is, uh, 100 doctrines of the Christian faith. And so in like 200 pages, like 100 doctrines, but they're all succinctly written in about two pages. Each one is about two pages, very compact, very concise. Um, although a better one is J.I. Packer's Concise Theology, I think, uh, because he packs it with way more scripture verses. Um, but uh, R.C. Sproul, in that, in that little book, he, he said that when he was a kid, um, you know, whenever it was starting to get dark, he remembers his mom would, you know, uh, open up the front door and she would she would call for him and uh, and he said usually the first call was not effectual uh, because he says I usually ignored it and uh, you know would just keep doing whatever I was doing he says but after a few minutes she would holler again usually with an even louder angrier sounding voice and he said and the second one was always effectual because I went home immediately right Mom is called, and I am making a beeline uh, for home. Um, and so we've we've already talked about this really in in uh, in some ways as we've talked about unconditional election uh, and total depravity. Um, but I wanted to specifically um, look at some passages um, where we get this from because when I say the age of debate, I mean um, it it really goes back to. I mean, at least where it's first recorded, and it was a first really full-on debate about this, was between um, uh, Augustine and Pelagius. You know, Pelagius believed that God's grace was resistible. That God, you know, presents the gospel through his people. The gospel is presented. The Holy Spirit woos people. You know, the Holy Spirit pricks their conscience and says, you know, you really ought to do this. You really ought to get saved. You got to put your faith in Christ. Um, but ultimately, Pelagius argued, it was up to that person. The final decision was with that individual, and they can resist the pulling of the Holy Spirit. They can resist the call of God 
if they choose to, because obviously Pelagian believed in free will. Um, and and he, when he said free will, he meant totally uh, uh, free uh, will, um, that we can choose for or against God. We had the ability to do either or. And uh, Augustine, of course, argued the opposite. Augustine argued that when God uh, calls a person unto eternal life, that person will be saved. That person will come. That person will put faith uh, in Christ. And some of where we get that from is, uh, you know, John, and we've looked at this passage before as well, but I want to just look at, look at some different wording in these, in these verses. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Uh, we can start in verse 35 to sort of give it context. So Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, so right there, Jesus is indicating that all that the Father gives me will come to me. Right? Not they might, not they could, not there's a strong probability but he says they will come. Um, yes, Jack. But I thought we were not puppets. We're not puppets. Then that doesn't make sense. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's continue, and maybe maybe I'll answer your question as 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 we go along. Uh, let's look at some of these verses, but I'll come back to your question. Right. So first of all, I just want to point out that Jesus says they will come. Then if you look down at verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Right? So there has to be that calling of God for someone to come. Right? No one can come unless the Father draws him. And those whom the Father draws, Jesus says, will come. Right? They will be saved. Um, so now the word calling isn't used there, but Paul uses it. If we go all the way to Romans, Romans 8, and we'll start in verse 28, just because that's such a great verse, but we're going to read down to verse, verse 30. Um, so Romans eight twenty eight, and uh, Scripture says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And what is that purpose? Verse twenty nine. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the purpose for which God calls some is so that they might be conformed to the image of his son. But now verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so this verse, verse 30, has been historically known 
uh, as the Ordo Salutis. It's Latin for order of salvation, right? And so theologians refer to this verse. They like they like giving these Latin titles to passages, right? Like you talk about Genesis 3.15 and they call it the, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Well, they refer to Romans 8.30 as the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, because Paul really does outline for us how salvation takes place in a person's life. Those who be predestined, so it starts with predestination, right? And from Ephesians 1.3, we learn that God uh, predestined certain ones from when? From before the foundations of the earth, right? So before the foundations of the earth, God predestined certain ones. Those who be predestined, what does he do with those that he has predestined from before the foundations of the earth? He calls, right? At some point, he calls them. And then he says, and those whom he called, he also justified, right? Which means then, this calling is not for everyone. Because those whom he calls, he justifies. And that's salvation. Justification by faith alone is another way of talking about the gospel. It's another way of defining the gospel. Uh, the very heart of the gospel is justification by faith alone. And Paul says, so first, God predestines from before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians chapter 1, and then those who be predestined, he will call at some point in their life, every single one that he calls will be justified. That's going back to what Jesus said, right? All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Those who come to Christ are justified by faith alone. Those who be justified then, he says, and those who be justified, he also glorified, right? He's talking about glorification, eternal glory with God the Father. And so, so this is the, the ordo salutis. This is the process in which every person gets saved. And so there is that calling in there that God effectually calls uh, those whom he has predestined. Now, um, somebody asked about Tulip being out of order. Can't remember who that was. Oh, we're talking about Tulip. Yes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but but and and so I'm I'm not skipping. If you know what Tulip is, right? I'm not skipping limited atonement. But I think limited atonement or definite redemption or effectual redemption. Those are all different terms that are used. Uh, only makes complete sense when we understand the others, right? We put it in that order, Tulip, because it makes for a nice acronym, right? If you put the L at the end and it's not a word, you couldn't say it. So, so the, the L goes in the middle of tulip. Um, but I think limited atonement or definite redemption makes sense only when we truly understand total depravity and unconditional election and irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. Then, when you understand those things, then the logical conclusion to all of that is, is definite redemption. Um, so we will get to that. We will get to that in the, uh, the next few weeks. But I want to look at the fact that Paul makes very clear that everyone that is predestined by God is called. And everyone that is called is justified, which means they will be saved and they will be glorified. So this is what scripture means, um, or this is what theologians mean when they talk about irresistible grace. Um, and this irresistible grace is something that God um, works by means of the gospel. Um, two different places we can go to, to look at that. Go to Romans 1. We'll stay in Romans. Romans 1. 
verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the gen- to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But here's the key. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. I, I find that verse so comforting. You know, as I sit and listen to Bobby talk about sharing the gospel with these people, it's so comforting to know that the power to transform lives is not found in our ability to articulate the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's not found in how many verses we have memorized. It's not found in how well we can defend apologetics or defend young earth creationism, right? The power to transform lives is found in the simple message of the gospel. That when we present that gospel message to people, God works through that in order to effectually call people to eternal life. Um, the clearest text regarding that, I think, is Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse. 13 and 14. Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. Right? So God chose. There's there's the choosing again. So we need to understand that unconditional election, God choosing unconditionally, right? And when we use that term, when we say unconditional election, what we're saying is that our election unto salvation is not conditioned upon anything that we do. Right? It's not it's not conditioned upon us being good or God foreseeing faith in us or anything of that nature. It is unconditional election. And unconditional election, God choosing, works hand in hand um, with effectual calling, which also works hand in hand with the gospel. We'll see that in the next verse. So he says, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. To this he called you through our gospel. So God uses the gospel as the means through which to irresistibly call people to himself, right? Now, when we say that, and this goes back to Jack's question, when we talk about irresistible calling, that it can't be resisted, it doesn't mean God brings us kicking and screaming into heaven, right? That, And that's why some theologians prefer e- effectual calling, uh, because irresistible, that it can't be resisted, almost conjures up ideas of, you know, I don't want to do this, right? God's like, you're going to be saved whether you want to or not, right? But that's that's not what we mean by that. Uh, when God calls a person, he miraculously alters the desires of their heart so that at one moment, they want nothing to do with God. They don't like God. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to read the Bible. They're very happy living in their sin. Uh, they, they, their conscience is not affected one bit by all of the curse words that come out of their mouth. Um, and most of the time they're not even aware of it. 
uh, I've actually experienced that with, with other people. Um, I remember one time I was in the army, we were out in the field and I remember trying to share the, the, uh, the, the gospel with uh, my platoon sergeant who just about five minutes prior to that, he was upset about something and he was on this, this verbal tirade and he was using every curse word imaginable. And, uh, and then somehow we started talking about God and I started sharing the gospel with him and he started saying, Oh, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I mean, you know, I believe in God. And, and I said, well, that's hard to believe. And he said, well, why is that? I said, well, first of all, it's your language. I mean, you, you curse like no one I've ever heard. And he said, when do I curse? I don't curse. <laughs> blind, right? Completely blind. Unbelievers are blind to their own sin, by and large. They sin far more than they even realize. Um, their conscience is just not bothered by it. Um, they're completely happy living in sin. That's where they want to be. But then when God calls them through the gospel, the gospel is presented to them at some point, and something inside of them changes. That's right. It changes. Um, God gives them a new heart. Uh, in fact, uh, I believe it's Ezekiel 34. Turns their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Yes. I don't know what that is now. Thirty-six, Ezekiel thirty-six, uh, verse twenty-six. God says, "And I will give you." So you know, talking about that, there's going to come a day. This is this is after, you know talking about the uh, the the day when when uh, the new covenant is is inaugurated and the Holy Spirit uh, gets poured out upon the nation of Israel, starting back in verse twenty-two. But then in verse 26, he says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right. So that's what happens, Jack, that, uh, that we're not puppets. God is replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh, a heart that is sensitive to the things of God, that is responsive to the things of God, a heart that wants to walk in obedience to the word of God. Now, we don't do it perfectly, right? We all know that. We fail miserably every day. But if you're a believer, your heart's greatest desire is to be obedient. You know, and, and you pray for that. Man, I just, if I could just live in accordance with God's laws all the time, you know, how happy I would be and everybody else would be happy around me as well, right? Um, and before conversion, of course, we had we did not have that desire. I mean, I grew up exposed to Christianity. I grew up in the Catholic Church. Uh, I knew about the Bible. I heard the stories of Jesus. I knew what sin was. Uh, I knew about the Ten Commandments. Didn't matter to me a hill of beans. I lived a horrible, sinful life for many, many years, until somebody shared the gospel with me, the true gospel, 
Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. He died on the cross for your sin. You're a sinner. You're on your way to hell. Don't you want to go to heaven instead? And for some reason, the same old stories that I had heard for many years prior to that impacted me. Like, it, this makes sense. And this is what I want, and I don't want sin anymore. Yes, Tommy. Why is it that the old heart still remains to some extent, right? Because that's why we're dealing with it. We're still being sinners. Yes. Why isn't it... It's not a hypothetical question. It's just for my curiosity. Why is it that we are not being entirely made perfect immediately once you decide to save us? Or give us that you want to know. Right. Um, because sin, sin still indwells us. Um, until, until death is the final stage in sanctification. Um, and when we die, we are brought into the presence of, of Christ, um, into the presence of God. And we no longer have sin that indwells us at that moment. Now, I guess the question is, why doesn't God do that immediately? Why not? As soon as we get saved, you know, that, that sin is entirely removed at, at that moment. Um, God has chosen in his divine wisdom uh, to not do it immediately, but rather to have us uh, progress through sanctification, to, to wrestle against sin. Um, the Bible never really answers that question. We know that it's true, not only from experience, but passages like Romans chapter 7. You know, Paul talks about sin dwells in our members, right? And we have to, we have to fight against the old man who dies hard. The old self will die eventually at death, but why doesn't God do that immediately? Um, honestly, that's a question that I think only God can answer. Right, right. There has to be a purpose. Yeah, because if it's not there, then where's our... Um, I would right. rather towards him because it's almost like I'm thinking it serves right. as a reminder so we never forget what we came from. Right. But we got rescued away from that. Right. I, I'm 100% convinced that there is yeah. a purpose for it. Because there is. Done whatever yeah. Because the default answer is always, well, for God's glory, right? Somehow it's for his glory and for our good, right? Because <laughs> we can ask those questions about lots of things. Like, if God is so loving, why did he create Adam and Eve in the first place, knowing that they would sin, right? I mean, there's all kinds of those. At the end of the day, everything God does is for his glory. It is, and what that means, specifically when we say for his glory, is God is, God is most glorified the more we know God. The more we know God and understand him fully, the more he is glorified in our minds. And I talked about this before, that had sin not entered the world, there are certain attributes about God we would never know. And so I think the process of sanctification is also a part of that. That as we live our lives battling with sin, well, first of all, we are we become, as Christians, we become keenly aware of how powerful sin is, right? And we become keenly aware of how grievous sin is to God, which makes us even more aware of the great sacrifice that Christ had to make on our behalf for our sins. And it also makes us aware of how amazing Christ is that he lived the perfect life of obedience to the law for 33 years. <laughs> Most of us can't go 24 hours, right? So all of that 
just exalts God in our mind. We see more and more of how amazing he is. We get a bigger picture of what it means to be holy, right? We talk about the holiness of God. God is without sin. He is perfect in every way. We can't even imagine what that's like. Um, because most of us, again, we can't go 24 hours without committing at least one sin. Um, that's kind of almost this continuous understanding that there was nothing we did. Yeah. Like, I, I didn't do this. Right. Like, I still don't even deserve it. Right. Even now. Yeah. Years later in sanctification, wait. No, I still don't deserve this. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, and another aspect, too, of sanctification, because, again... Um, this just occurred to me that if the chief end of man is to know God, right, to know him fully, well, the Holy Spirit is a part of the Godhead. And without sanctification, how much would we really know and understand and appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives if there wasn't that process of sanctification? Um, and so, so still, I have to admit that I'm speculating on a lot of this, right? At the end of the day, it's for his glory. We know that. And somehow it's for our good, and it's in his divine wisdom. And that's a great question we can ask him when we get there. Um, but all of these, to me, rationally, logically, and even biblically, make sense that this is why God allows this process and not just... Um, and to be fair, he doesn't allow that process with everybody, right? The thief on the cross. Um, he... <laughs> There was no struggle of sanctification in his life. He got saved and he was he was there. He was in the presence of God. But sanctification right? too, I mean, we have to learn to persevere, to endure, to right. to arrive. So I mean I think it's that's part of that process that we were just instantaneously, you know, that person we wouldn't have, yeah, we wouldn't have to rely on God to to Take us through the journey. Yeah. We'll just be like, oh, I'm good. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. It wouldn't have any value if it was not that. Right. Exactly. It's like gratification. So right. the struggle makes this valuable too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Another, I don't know, speculation. But um, not just for the person who has been seeing and is being sanctified. Um, of course, as Christians, we're witnessing, right? And we're, we're speaking of the gospel to others. But we also, they, if they're with us long enough, or just and day in and day out, you know, we are now also because of, they see our sanctification. Right. So now we're witnessing in another way. Like I would think that would be a, a big tool. My family, even though they rejected it, they know I'm a very different person than I ever was when I was younger. And um, I, I'm so back. Well. Like, I know we baffle, but we know that not everyone's supposed to be safe, but you still kind of ponder, like, why, please, and what ifs, you know? Right. And I, like, I don't understand how my brother, before he passed, didn't see the differences. Mm-hmm. Or they, they prayed, they prayed me, and I'm like, it's not me, it's God, because on my own, I was a mess. You saw who I was, and I still am, but that mess got cleaned up kind of rapidly on a few major areas, you know? Right. And so, um, and but he passed on not at denying Christ or forgetting what we learned, or it just you know, of course, it didn't change me. My mom also passed away, and she was reading her Bible, and I, I'm like, that's good. I hope that I don't know what 
there's a lot of what it's about my mom. You know, it'll be a nice surprise if I see her. Mm. I'll be honest, that'll be amazing. However, I did go through, so I saw her journals, you know, because, you know, you go through things when someone passes. And, like, so my mom has a way of displaying the things she wants you to find, <laughs> you know. And, and I saw her bitterness poured out in papers up until, like, till the last day she could write. And I'm like, gosh, you know, I, my hope would have been to see how righteous God is and it, I get to meet my maker. Mm. You know, I hope, like, I, my hope would be that. I know pain can get in the way of that, right. you know, the right. physical pain. Right. So I don't mean this as a judgment. It's just, like, that would be my wish, that I would have that peace and that passes any understanding, including the pain you might have to go through. Right. So, and I had wished that for my mom. Um, however, I, she, I guess, had a 16th, 1960s version of Christianity, and I think it was the people and, um, and God loves everybody kind of thing, and, you know, we all have different paths, but, you know, Christianity is the main one, and, like, there were a lot of yeah. things over time that just weren't adding up, and, um, yeah. You know, so like I'm not trying to grieve my mom right now, but what I'm saying is that that people saw major changes and they still like, well, that's just not for me, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, people people are dead in their sins; they're blind, and uh, you know, unless the Holy Spirit sovereignly opens their eyes, um, it, it, it is. You know, and, and I know people can, can struggle with that, you know, as we looked at in Romans 9, Paul asks obvious questions, right? Is there injustice on God's part? Um, but in, 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 in a lot of ways, understanding from Scripture um, the sovereignty of God and salvation, um, irresistible grace, is extremely comforting. Uh, it's, it's, it's comforting in terms of the pressure is not on me to get people saved, right? Um, my job is simply to give them the gospel and, and God does the rest. It's comforting when you have a special needs child where I don't know how much she understands, right? Um, or you have a loved one who gets into a car accident and they're, they're comatose in the hospital. They're not dead, but they're in a coma, right? You know what? God can still save that person, right? Because it is a sovereign, monergistic work of God. He can still regenerate their soul in a state of comatose before they die and pass on. Um, there is great comfort in that. If you, if you take away the sovereignty of God and salvation, and you go with the Arminian view of salvation, well then, man, there's a lot of pressure on us. That if we don't say it the right way, if we don't know how to present the gospel, people are going to hell. And, it's, and a lot of it is our fault. Sure, they chose, but we could have done a better job. But then also, you have that loved one who's in a comatose. Unless they come out of it and can hear the gospel and receive it, there's, there's no hope for them. Right? That is, that is tragic. Uh, people that are brain damaged, you know, uh, it's, it's tragic. Uh, so there's great comfort in knowing that this is God's work, right? Um, yes. I wanted to say that um, I'm glad I'm not the thief on the cross. That when 
Because it has given me the years to love the Lord more and more and more. And I would have missed out on all of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. he had just taken me right away. So for me, it's a blessing. Yeah, yeah. To, and and, and to go through the process of sanctification. Yeah, you said something off of the table talk, the one that we missed, I wrote down that you said, in Colossians 2.13, you were talking about Jesus died for all and how people take that out among the elect. You said, not for creation, not all of creation, but all among the elect. Mm -hmm. and, it, and then you said something about our role is to just share the gospel with everyone and let God sort them out. Right. That spoke volumes right. to me because, I mean, we've gone back right. and forth wondering about, you know, my mom, my mom professes to believe, but she has some pretty floral language at times. And <laughs> Some, some things that come out of her mouth and things like that, but when we sit and we talk to her, she gets offended and she's like, you guys don't think that I know Jesus? And I mean, we're, we're like... Right. But other than, so we've gone back and forth about, well, what's our role and what's our responsibility? And if I finally just had to, after I read after I heard that and I wrote it down, I was just like, well, that's just it. All I have to do is live it out. Right. Present it to her in the way that we speak. Yep. She 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 knows it, she's heard it, you know, just just love her, be yeah. a Christ like example to her, and let the Holy Spirit work in work in her life. Um and uh, and when you talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation, you know, when you were mentioning the thief on the cross, it reminded me of um uh, I was listening I think I posted it on my Facebook page, a little clip by Alistair Begg, uh someone I enjoy listening to. But uh, but it, it cracked me up the way he was talking about the, the, the thief on the cross. I mean, right, there, there's a person who, I mean, quite honestly, he wasn't actually even presented with the gospel, with words, right? But he placed his faith, obviously, he placed his trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And so so even there, you know, when, when Paul talks about the gospel as the power of God and the salvation, it's not necessarily... A, a, a verbally accurately worded kind of presentation and so he talks about you know there's an individual who probably died and stood before the pearly gates of heaven and said you know why are you here well, well I don't know because the man on the cross said I could be here you know, <laughs> you know? I mean he just he said I could come and so that's why I'm here um, you know what 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 do you say to that uh, he, I, I trusted in him. He said, today will be right. in paradise. It's like the laborers, um, right? The ones who get, you know, a day's wage and right. work all day for the same pay as those who work 30, 45 minutes to an hour. Right. It's kind of like, because that's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and so I think, and I say that because we have to be careful about that the gospel has to be verbally presented. I had to kind of argue with my publisher about this. There was a, a point in my book where I said, I said that, um, the, the 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 gospel you know has the power to to transform lives and they wanted to edit it and change it to the preached gospel has the power and I had to write back and say well now wait a minute you know can a person not get saved by reading the gospel I mean can a can a deaf person not get saved by having it signed to them? I mean, I, you know, I get the importance of preaching the word of God, but the gospel just has to be communicated in some way, form, shape, or fashion 
so that they understand Christ died for my sins and I believe that and I'm trusting in him and that's what the thief on the cross did obviously to some extent yeah Bobby you know, I think talked about this a little bit I think many many Christians uh, look at grace somehow like it's compartmentalized like somehow it's sort of held in some sort of a, a box right okay you're resisting oh grace right and really grace like every attribute of God is infinite yeah it's an infinite attribute it covers it's beyond it's beyond anything we can actually really understand totally we get we get the picture he's given us by the same token it's still outside of our total reach right. in this life right right i'm not sure I mean, we yeah. see christ as right. he is i think we'll know a whole lot more about grace than we know yeah. and even when we talk about grace you know i think that's an important word to define correctly um you know grace is i've heard it defined many times grace is the uh is the unmerited favor of god right I think that's just half the definition. Um, I think Arthur Pink had it right when he said, grace is the unmerited favor of God bestowed on those who are in positive demerit. Um, and, and what he means by that is that many Christians think grace as an analogy is like walking down the street and seeing a homeless person that I don't know and they don't know me. And so I go to them and just out of the kindness of my heart, I say, hey, I'm going to take you in. I'm going to I'm going to clothe you with new clothes. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you a place to live. And I'm just going to take care of you. Right. And many men, I've heard people say that that describes God's unconditional grace. Right. The person didn't deserve it. And so that's 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 us. And that's God. Well, Arthur Pink's definition is. If you take his definition, those in positive demerit, then he is saying that really God's saving grace is like walking down the street and seeing a homeless person that doesn't know you, but you recognize them. And you recognize him as the same person who burned down your home, killed your family, stole all your possessions, and yet you're going to take them in and you're going to clothe them and feed them and take care of them and you're going to love on them and bring them into a covenant relationship with you right that that is god's saving grace when we talk about irresistible grace that is what god has done for us right we have robbed him of his glory we've shaken our fist at him we have spit in the face of god and yet he says i'm going to love you anyway and i'm going to make you mine right that's the amazing grace of God. Um, and so when we talk about effectual calling, it's important also to keep in mind that there are two types of calling. There is what theologians call general calling, general call, and effectual call. The general call is the gospel message that goes out to everyone. Right? There is a general call that goes out to the world that says, repent. And believe upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. That goes out to everybody. But then there's the effectual call, which is only for the elect. It is only for those whom God has predestined, right? The order salutis. Uh, those who, and you know what? Uh, something occurred to me that uh, about that order salutis, just talking about uh, 
God's amazing grace that I want to point out back in Romans chapter 8. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, I totally skipped that one word, which is really important. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. So it really begins with foreknowledge. But what do, what do we mean by that? Arminians will oftentimes want to take that and say, see, God looked down the corridors of time, and those whom he foreknew in advance would put their faith in him, he chose them. Well, of course, we all know the problems with that right now. It, it means that God reacts, and if God reacts, then God learns, and if God learns, then God's not God. That word, pro-ginosko, the word ginosko, yes, it does, it can mean an intellectual knowledge, but it can also mean an intimate knowledge. It is the same Greek word that Mary uses, for example, when the, when the angel tells her that she will conceive a son, and she says, how can that be? For I have never known a man, right? She's not saying, I don't know what a man is. I have no idea what, what right? <laughs> That's today, right? Well, what is man and woman? Uh, she's saying, she's saying, I have never been in an intimate relationship with a man, right? When Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, he is saying those whom God for loved. God loved certain ones before they were even created. Those whom he loved from eternity past, he predestines. And those whom he predestines, he calls. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. What's that? With who? Esau, yeah. That's the same principle. That's right, that's right. Jacob, I loved, yep. right? Loved from eternity past. Um, and, and, and that's amazing when you stop and think about it. That God, before, before Genesis 1-1, before he even creates the earth, God knew every one of us by name. And he loved us. And therefore chose those whom he loved. Predestines them. Calls them. Glorifies them. Um... But that's only for the that's only for the elect. Um, but there is a general calling, and we get that from places like Matthew chapter twenty-two. Oh, oh. there's another one. Uh, simple verse, but it really goes. It, it, it this one short verse explains general calling versus effectual calling. Matthew twenty-two verse fourteen. Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Right? Well, what does that mean? It means that that's the general calling. Right? Many are called. Many are given the gospel. Many are called to repent and believe. But few are chosen. Right? For few, there is the effectual calling where Ezekiel 36, God gives them a new heart, changes the desires of their heart and effectually calls them uh, to be his own. Um, and, uh, and that's how salvation comes about. That's how one moment we hated the things of God, and the next moment we can't get enough of God. Um, it wasn't because we were smarter than the next person or a little less prideful than the next person. It's because God just chose to save us.
So yeah. And that's what gives us our humility. Humility. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, I say all the time that when I came to uh, an understanding of the sovereign grace of God and salvation, it was like a second born again experience for me. Um, it was incredibly humbling. Um, and it just catapulted my worship of him. I mean, that very next Sunday, I was worshiping God in a way that I had never worshiped him before because I realized he did it all. I mean, he did it all. I was dead like Lazarus. I was in the tomb and he could have left me there because you have to think that the tomb that they placed Lazarus in, there were probably other tombs, but he doesn't bother with the others. He says, just remove that one. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. If he said everybody come forth, they would have. Yeah. They would have. Yeah, had he said everybody come they all would have came forth. Yeah. But, but he doesn't. He just raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, and, and you see the sovereignty of God in so many different ways. You see it in the healing of the, uh, the, the paralyzed man by the pool of Siloam. I mean, the text tells you that it's a place where many sick and ill people went. Yet Jesus only heals one. And then he walks off. What about the rest of them? God is God. Right? He does what he wants. And he answers to no one. Um, none of those people deserve to be healed. The fact that he healed one is an act of grace. It's an act of sovereign grace. Um, so it's, it's humbling. Right? I had the occasion to talk to a person at the store the other day. And we were talking about how he was... You know, righteous man knew the law and all of that. <laughs> it's like he he went away and just literally like, oh well. Right, right. But he's there at the end, right? He's one of the ones that helps to bury him. So he uh, yep. yeah, yeah. There's an indication. I mean, we don't know for certain, but there's an indication. That he comes around by the end of his ministry. It's the same thing we do in, in nowadays, to be honest with you, because there's there's always that indication, and um, things like okay, where where do you put a, you know baby that dies at you know two days old? Right. Kind of thing. Right. And, uh, and MacArthur, I believe, would tell you the baby's life. Yeah. yeah. And who knows what wickedness they would cause as they grow? Right. We never know how bad. Right. I'm not saying that that's why they would die. I'm just saying I always wonder right. maybe that was something God spared people up to. Right. That's where we just have to trust in the divine wisdom and the goodness of God. Yeah. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us. Um, my my belief is that um, uh, infants who die. Uh, go to heaven. That's my belief. I have some scripture to back it up, but I'll admit it's a it's it's shaky. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. And uh, it, right, and, and and where I get that from, I you know, and it, that's actually you know, uh, um, uh, I'm actually in line with the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, they, they they actually though say quite strongly, definitively. That every infant who dies goes to heaven. And uh, um, I lean that way um, because of two things. One is that um, when, you, when you read the story of, of David, when his infant dies, he says, he specifically says, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. Now, it may be that he's just saying, well, I'm going to die too. 
But how would that be comforting? Right? He is saying that in some comforting way, David seems to believe that he is going to see his son again. Right? Uh, David was a prophet. He filled the role of prophet and king. Right? So I, I think that if David uh, you know, believed that, he had some reason to believe that. Um, so that's number one. Number two, um, the Bible does speak far more, I mean, just numerically, about the love and the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. And I just, I personally struggle with the idea that God doesn't just bring infants into heaven. Um, now, when I say I struggle with it, God is God. And at the end of the day, if I get to heaven and realize that he did the opposite, God is God. He does what he wants. Right. Um, the Jews were ordered to kill the whole town, including the children, right? The Jews were ordered. Uh, like in the, uh, oh, right. The right, right, right. Uh, yes. Times where each, everyone was to be slaughtered. Yes, there were many times when God said, go in and spare, spare no one. Yeah. But I mean, there's just so many passages that talk about how God is rich in mercy, how he's yeah. rich in grace, how he does not, he does not delight in seeing uh, the wicked perish. Um, and so I, I, I get that infants are born with a sin nature, uh, and God would be just, God would be just to allow them all to perish. Um, they are born with a sin nature. Um, but I, there's a part of me that just believes that God is merciful to them. That's right. In all those circumstances. That's right. That we just got to kind of say, okay, let's stay with the meat and potatoes that we got right here. Yeah. And be obedient children. That's what's important. Yeah. Because yeah. he delights in that for sure. That's right. That's right. Shannon. There's also a lot of references about God's love and protection for the defenseless. Yes. The yes. widows, the oppressed, and, the, and his expectation on the common community to, to care for those. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hinn, yeah. Uh-huh. Father, yeah. Um, did a... I think it was like... I think it was a, maybe a podcast, maybe a video, but on on that topic, it was really good. Mm. Um, in that he thinks that... Yeah. Infants who passed and go to heaven, right. and then the scripture references, right? Um, and just so just from a pastoral perspective, you know, if you're comforting a woman who just lost her baby, mm. you know, she doesn't want to hear. Well, you know, <laughs> he was born in sin. <laughs> so, I don't know where he is. Um, so what about? Mm -hmm, I'm just gonna go there about like miscarriage and things like that. Like, yeah. Like, do they have a soul yet? Yes. 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 I mean, so that, from the moment of conception, well, they I have a spirit. That, so <laughs> and I do believe every right. aborted baby is in heaven. That's what I believe. Now, some people have tried to, uh, the, 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 the pro-abortion side have tried to turn it around and say, well, then why are Christians so opposed to it? They're all going to heaven, right? Yeah, right. That's right. It's murder, right? It's murder. But I do believe that. I believe every aborted baby is in heaven. I may be wrong and find that out when I get there. But once I get there, I will be in complete conformity with the character and the will of God. So it won't matter. Mm -hmm. Yes. So label me an analyst. 
Um, from a new covenant, old covenant standpoint, a young child, even up to pretty young age, would probably meet most of, if not all, of the old covenant, you know, terminology of, you know, the Ten Commandments, and especially a young, unborn child, for sure. Um, and I get there's that concept of a sense of, um, there's that age of, Understanding, well, understanding the sense of sin, the sense of actually, you know, just you know, misbehaving sort of thing. But even beyond that, I think from that standpoint, if you go all the way to the New Testament, it says even looking at a person with malice, even uh, the number one and number two, you know, commandments that, that Jesus talks about. Right. I think they still meet those criteria at a pretty young age, up mm-hmm. to a pretty pretty high level, mm-hmm. up to the point where. Now, I thought where you were going with this because um, this kind of conversation uh, can can and has led some denominations to come up with this age of accountability thing. Yeah, right? that's what I was reaching for. Because, because if I say, if I say infants who die go to heaven, then the question becomes, how do you define an infant, right? Like, at what point... Do they become culpable for their own sin? And right, and that's where I'm not going to even entertain that kind of a question. Uh, you know, I mean, right? You know, so like, is it is it is it babies that are under six months? What about the seven month old? You know, what about the eight month old? At what point are they no longer an infant who just goes right to so heaven? So what you do is you um, take what you know. You know that God can fill an infant with the Holy Spirit. That's right. Because he, he can. did it with John the Baptist. John the Baptist. So we know that regeneration yeah. can happen. But he does not tell us that it does happen. Right. So the only thing I ever tell anybody is, I know my baby went to heaven. I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> right. right. I know that. That's yeah. all I so in the end, and that's where I started by saying, I started by saying, you know, in the end, we have to just trust in the divine wisdom and the goodness of God, right? God, the divine judge of all the earth, always does what is right. That's what Abraham said, right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And whatever happens with infants, God will do what is right and what is just and what is merciful. Uh, I mean, and what is best, and we just have to trust that and know that he knows what's best, and his will is always what is right and what is best. But, uh, so that's it. See, look. Right on the money. <laughs> 8.26. Told you I could do it. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> All right, well, why don't we, uh, let's close in, a, close in a word of prayer and we can continue the conversation over a dessert and coffee. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we um, we worship you, Lord God. We honor you. We are amazed by your grace and goodness. Um, Lord, we um, were all, and uh, we were all at one point, and, and some of us even still are, uh, the homeless person on the street that had committed many, many crimes against you. And we're not only undeserving of your goodness, but we were deserving of your wrath. And uh, yet, you bestowed great mercy on those of us who have placed faith in Christ. 
You've opened our eyes to the glory of Christ. You've given us a heart of flesh. You removed the heart of stone. You've given us the Holy Spirit to help us in this process of sanctification to become more like Christ. And uh, we are just amazed by your grace and your goodness and your mercy. And we pray, Lord God, that these truths, these theological truths, uh, would not simply puff us up intellectually, but would humble us, Lord God, spiritually, that we would uh, worship you all the more, that our desire to please you would be increased exponentially in light of all that you have done for us. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you. In Christ's name, amen.